would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we again, uh, we do not want to miss the extraordinary reality that you are here with us, that you are speaking to us in your word, that you've remembered us and you are showing grace even now. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that we might um, receive what you have for us and be changed to your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever come across, uh, this is something that our, my kids put me on to, honest movie summaries. Have you, have you seen these before? Um, I found them humorous. Um, see, see if you can figure out what movies these are. Um, noseless guy has an unhealthy obsession with teenage boy. Harry Potter. Um, two midgets spend nine hours returning jewelry. Can you figure that one out? It's the Lord of the Rings. Um, and, and this is perhaps my favorite one. A group of religious extremists brainwash a young man into blowing up a government building and killing his father. That, of course, is Star Wars. So uh, these obviously all are in some ways right, but it's interesting to me how you can kind of just frame a story in such a way that you completely miss the plot. And I've noticed that that's not just true for movies. There is a way where I think people can go through the events day in, day out, the different moments of their life, and yet not really understand the story that they are a part of. I bring this up because we are now starting a new series on Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians specifically. Um, and, and this letter in many ways is devoted to helping a church understand the story that they are a part of. Paul is writing to a young and suffering church and he's wanting to help them see how God is powerfully at work in them. And and I believe that's what God desires for us so that we can rewrite our stories or more rightly reframe our stories and see what's truly taking place in them. So this morning, uh, we are beginning kind of what you could say is the origin story. We're backing up. Acts tells us, we, it's a longer passage, really beginning at the end of 15, and we skip much of it and I'll kind of cover some of it, but it gives us the origin story of the church in Thessalonica which hopefully will help us to understand what's going on as we work through this letter. And so if we want to talk about this church, um, in some ways the story of their church begins with a prayer. At the very end of chapter 15, it says that Paul and Silas, who's right now with their home church in Antioch, they are commended to the grace of the Lord. They are commended, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord of the Lord. If you, I mean, Nick mentioned about how they just dropped off their kid at kindergarten for the first time not that long ago. If you've had that experience as a parent, you know how it feels. You know, these little guys with a backpack that's like bigger than them that only is carrying like a juice box. They're all excited and you give them a hug and a kiss. And in that moment, you see them kind of like toddling over to their class. And in that moment, you realize you have just let go of any control of their fate for a few hours. You have entrusted them. You have commended them to the teacher. And that's, that's the idea here of when it says that Paul and Silas were commended to the grace 
of the Lord. This is probably sometime maybe in the morning. They've had breakfast together with all their friends at the Antioch church. The, the leaders of the Antioch church have come and, and placed their hands on Paul and Silas to send them off for this missionary journey. And, and after the prayer is done and they hug and, and kiss, and right before they leave, I can imagine that one of the Antioch leaders like raises his hands in benediction and says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And they are commended to the grace of the Lord. And Acts tells us this to help us to understand what this story that we're about to hear is about. That this story is a story of what happens when people are entrusted into the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, I imagine if, if we were writing this, we might write it differently because I think the common assumption is that the Christian teaching is when you trust Jesus faithfully, when you follow him faithfully, life becomes simpler. That life oftentimes becomes easier and, and confusion becomes less because Jesus is leading. We have you know, different verses like, you know, God works all things for the good and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It seems like things should be easier, except at least in this situation, it wasn't. So it begins, well, Paul and Silas visit some different churches in Syria as they're starting to move west, places that have already been planted. They're encouraging them. They're being encouraged. They find this new guy, Timothy, who's interested in maybe a life as a missionary. And so Timothy scores like the most amazing internship ever. He's an intern now with Paul. And things are looking good. But then they get to Asia. Asia is this, this vast region. It's essentially modern Turkey. And it's a place with lots of cities that haven't heard the gospel. If, if Paul was doing like a missionary presentation in Antioch before going, if in that day they had had PowerPoint, he would have gone through slides of each city, Ephesus and Colossae and Philadelphia. These are places that need the gospel. And everyone would have been praying and excited to send Paul to go to these cities. And so he gets to Asia, to the region called Phrygia, and something really strange happens. Maybe you notice it. It says, when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word. They are all excited. They have these good desires, and they come to this area, and we don't know exactly how it happens, whether it's like a vision that Paul has or an internal voice, or maybe it's just when they go to these different cities, nothing opens up for them, but they are forbidden to speak the word of the gospel. And what we do know, it seems, is that they aren't told what to do next. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, they just keep going. They, they keep moving to the West, and you can just imagine them praying and talking and trying to figure things out. And, and you should realize that when it's saying that they're going through this region, this isn't just a day's journey. This is, over, this is almost 400 miles. So we're talking about weeks and weeks of walking. At times they have to stop in town to maybe earn a little bit of money doing some side jobs, and they're praying, and they don't seem to have any clarity, and they keep moving and moving. And finally it says they get to this new region. They're, they're up against like the Baltic Sea, and they're in the area of Bithynia. And it says, and they tried to go there. So they feel like, hey, we're now in a new region. Maybe this is where God wants us to go. They, they start kind of planning about the cities they want to visit. And, and again, what does it say? It says, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Jesus doesn't allow them to preach the gospel. Can you imagine how frustrated they would have felt after weeks of aimlessness? This 
This is what it looks like at times to be entrusted into the grace of the Lord Jesus, to be confused and frustrated and at times wondering if you are wasting your time. But then finally, something happens. We see that a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Finally, a vision telling them what to do. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And Paul wakes up and he tells his friends and they move into action immediately. They take the next boat to Macedonia. They go to head to Philippi, which is one of the major cities there. And, and as they're moving, there, you should know that Paul has a pretty consistent strategy when he's doing church planting. He's still a well-known Jewish teacher. He was brought up in the best of places. And so anytime he goes to a place, if there's a synagogue there, he has this open invitation to be able to speak. That's what he usually does. He goes to the synagogue, spends time trying to explain to them how Jesus is what the whole Bible has been pointing to. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And as he preaches, not only does he preach to the Jews, but there are other people there, Gentiles that are known as God-fearers, people who are interested in Judaism but aren't yet Jews. And so as he's preaching to them, then they... If they become Christians, they become contacts and they kind of can connect him to other people in the city. And slowly from there, he works his way through the city. And that's, that's how Paul plants a church. So you can only imagine they have been now walking for weeks without doing anything in terms of ministry. And finally, they have this vision where a man says, please come here. And they're like, Finally, this is what God has been preparing us this whole way for. This is what he is doing. So after praying and planning, they go to Philippi and they hear that there's not even a synagogue there. But there is a place, it says a place by the river where people would meet to pray who are interested in Judaism. So that's, that's where they go. And, and they go there and they find on a Sabbath morning almost no one. But there is one woman a woman by the name of Lydia, who they start talking with because Paul was ready to have this large speech and sermon and no one's there, so they just have a conversation. Turns out that Lydia is doing fairly well as a merchant. She is a, a trader of purple goods, which apparently at that time was really trendy because she's, she's doing well. And, and as they're talking, she is listening intently. And there seems to be something that's going on inside her where she comes to believe everything that Paul says. She's a God-fearer who knows some of the Bible, and now she knows Jesus, and she's baptized, and she has her household baptized, and she's, she begs Paul and Silas, please, come stay with us. And finally, it seems like something is going on in the city of Philippi. This is the first fruit they're having. They have this beachhead now where they can stay. But very little happens after that, it seems. For, for weeks, Paul returns to that spot along the riverbed, and he seems to make very, very few connections. I mean, he does have one weird connection. There's this demon-possessed slave girl who, whose primary job seems to be making money for her owners because she could um, give fortunes to people for some money, and so the owners would, would profit through her. And she starts just kind of following Paul along and just keep on yelling stuff about him wherever they go. And so no one wants to talk to Paul because there's this weird slave girl right next to him. And, and finally, Paul, frustrated, casts the demon out of her, and then everything goes crazy. Because the owners of the slave girl now realize that their income has completely dried up because there's no more demon to tell fortunes. And they are so angry that they drag Paul and Silas 
to the town center to the magistrate and they yell out, these foreigners have come here to tell us to do un-Roman things. And remember, Philippi, we talked about Philippi last week, is the patriotic city. To do un-Roman things is terrible. And so the crowd hearing that, they start getting angry and they start yelling at Paul and Silas. They start hitting them. And the magistrate, perhaps trying to kind of placate the crowd before things go completely out of control, tell the soldiers to take off Paul and Silas's clothes and take these rods, these heavy sticks, and start repeatedly beating them. And eventually, when they are probably like just in, in a ball on the ground in pain, they are taken away to prison where they are put in stocks. Welcome to Macedonia, Paul. The next morning, the magistrate, realizing that Paul was a Roman citizen, which is a terrifying reality because Roman citizens are not allowed to be treated like that, apologized to Paul and Silas, but still asks for them to leave the city before things get worse. And so Paul and Silas go to Lydia's house, and it tells us that pretty much the whole church that was in Philippi is just hanging out at Lydia's house. This is not a large group of people. Maybe, maybe 12 new Christians? And Paul prays for them. And bruised and battered, he and Silas and Timothy kind of hobble away out of the city. And if we're wondering how they felt about their interaction in Philippi, actually the, the, letter, to Thessalonians, uh, the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul actually speaks about it. He says, you know how when I left and I came to you from Philippi, he doesn't say how we experienced revival, how we were so excited because we saw many people come to Christ. No, he says, you know how we suffered and were terribly treated. That, that is his summary of what happened in Philippi. So they go on this three-day journey, probably limping the whole way, and they finally get to Thessalonica. This is the city we're, we're interested in, right? This is, this is the origin story for when we're looking at the, the letter to the Thessalonians. And they come to Thessalonica, which is the, the capital of Macedonia. It's larger than Philippi, which means it has a larger Jewish population, which means there is a synagogue. So that's helpful. Paul comes to the synagogue. He, for three straight Sabbaths, preaches there, and as he explains to them about the gospel of Jesus, some people believe, some Jews believe, and also some of these God-fearers, in fact, more and more God-fearers start believing, and these God-fearers start connecting them to the city, and Paul's life becomes incredibly busy. Part of the time throughout the week, he is just trying to earn money. He's, you know, finding odd jobs, helping out with making tents or that kind of thing, so that he doesn't have to be a burden to anyone. Part of his week he's spending just meeting one-on-one, -on -one, Bible studies, trying to help these people who are interested or people who have just become Christians to know what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. And things finally are going well. And that becomes a problem. Because in their success, they cause the Jewish synagogue leaders to get jealous. They feel like they are losing their congregation to Paul and Silas and Timothy. And not only that, these, these God-fearing Gentiles suddenly are no longer like a, a lower tier because Paul is saying anyone who believes in Jesus are all equal. And that's not okay with the Jewish synagogue leaders. So they decide to play dirty. It says they get to some troublemakers. Do you notice uh, how they're described here? It says um, that they went to some wicked, rab wicked men of the rabble. 
which I love that wicked men of the rabble. I mean, if you're ever looking for like a new insult, maybe you have like a rival team that you don't like, you know, those Green Bay Packers, those wicked men of the rabble, it's just kind of a fun thing to try. So, so the wicked men of the rabble, th these Jewish leaders talks to these, these hooligans and, and basically gets them, these hooligans to then take a bunch of other rabble, I suppose, and to start a riot, to start a mob. And, and here's what they're saying. They're saying, these people have come and they had turned the world upside down and now they're telling you to follow a different king from Caesar. They're telling you to follow Jesus. These people are turning the world upside down and now they've come here to tell you not to follow Caesar but to follow Jesus. Again and again, they're doing that and the crowd starts getting more and more angry and there is this mob and the mob start just kind of heading in the head to Jason's house. Now, Jason, we know nothing about except that he's the poor guy who decides to let Paul and Silas stay with him. He's one of the new converts in Thessalonica. And it seems like Jason and his fellow believers are meeting with Paul and Silas. They're maybe praying. They're maybe studying the Bible together. And they hear the crowd coming. They hear some of the roars. And they quickly hide Paul and Silas. And when they get the banging on the door, they have no choice but to open it up. And, and the mob leader says, give us Paul and Silas. And they refuse. And someone said, fine, we'll take you. So it says they take Jason and they take some of the other believers. And they drag them into the town center. And they bring the charges again before the magistrate. And the magistrate, seeing a potential destruction of rioting and that kind of thing, makes an agreement saying, okay, Jason, if you hand up some money right now and you make a promise that Paul and Silas will leave, we'll let you go free and everything will be fine. And Jason really doesn't have much of a choice, so he agrees. He pays bond, it says. And if you think about it, in other words, these Jewish leaders, their plan worked to perfection. Paul and Silas are now being kicked out. And so Jason comes back and he tells Paul and Silas and Timothy, and you can just imagine the grief that they are feeling. And in the middle of the night, in midnight, so that they are not seen by people, they flee the city, the first place where they are actually beginning to experience any kind of growth in this whole journey. They are now having to flee, knowing that these people are young Christians and that they're persecuted Christians. And if you have any questions about how Paul was feeling about this, he actually, in his letter to the Thessalonians, will talk about how, you know, he says, how a month later, when we were heading off to Athens, um, he says, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. They sent Timothy back after they had already left a month later, because we, it says, wanted to learn about your faith. And listen to this, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, Paul is afraid. He is afraid as he leaves that because this faith is so new and because the persecution is so obviously intense that maybe no one will be left in a short while. He's afraid that in all of this effort and the beating and the bruisedness, in the end, it will all have been for nothing and he would have been a failure. 
Do you, know, do you know what that's like to have just invested and prayed and hoped and yet not be sure that you've done anything? I just want to step back for just one moment and think about, we have said that this is a story of what happens when people are entrusted to the grace of Jesus. That's, that's how it's been framed for us. Paul and Silas were entrusted. They were handed over to the grace of Jesus. They have sought to trust themselves to the grace of Jesus and follow him. And what has happened? We, we've seen them wandering for four, five, six weeks without any clarity. Finally, they are given direct guidance, come to Macedonia. And when they get to Macedonia, what happens? They are beaten, they're imprisoned, and they get nothing happening in Philippi, it seems like. Then they go to Thessalonica, then things begin to happen, and they are kicked out. If you want a basic movie summary, it could be this. Missionaries trust Jesus, get lost, rejected, beaten, and imprisoned. End of story. Except that just like the other Honest Movie summaries, that, that isn't quite right. It's an easy way to see things if we are looking honestly, but there is another part of this that with trained eyes to see recognizes a different story is going on. When, when Paul is preaching to the Thessalonian, Thessalonian church, um, there is an important part of it that we need to recognize. He, he's speaking to the Thessalonians, and when he's going to the synagogue, he understands that many of these Jews in, synagogue, in the synagogue, even still, though they were far away from Israel, might have heard of what happened with Jesus. They might know that Jesus was someone who was reputed to be the Messiah, but then he died this terrible, humiliating death on the cross. So clearly he wasn't. And, and what does Paul preach? Paul says, and this is what he tries to persuade them of, this is the heart of his message, that it was necessary for the Christ, that is for God's Messiah, to suffer and die before rising again. It was necessary for God's appointed king to suffer and die. Paul, Paul's message when he is preaching to the Thessalonians is that the way with God's king to victory and glory is through dishonor and apparent failure. As I came across something um, recently written by a theologian, Scott Swain, um, Here's what he wrote, and I thought it was right. He wrote, um, To the untrained eye, the last week of Jesus' ministry appears to be a failed enthronement ceremony with the would-be king ascendant executed for blasphemy and treason. This, this we might say, is, is the bad movie summary. It appears to be a failed enthronement ceremony with a would-be king ascendant executed. But Scott goes on to write, Jesus' crucifixion is, in fact, his enthronement on the divine mercy seat. The final Passover sacrifice. The foundation stone of the church. The opening of a new and living way for all nations into God's holy presence. In Christ crucified, the kingdom of God and of David has come. 
That's the message that Paul is preaching, that, that with God, that with God's Christ, what, in what appears to be failure, we actually find the victory of God. That's how God works through his king. And that is also how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ works for those who entrust themselves to him. If we just go through the story again, I, I, I don't think Acts ever gives us a complete understanding of why Jesus kept on saying no, 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 the whole way as they were walking through Asia. But here's what we do know. A number of months later, when Paul and Silas are in Corinth, they meet this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who are these Christians who are mature. And, and later on, a couple years later, when Paul actually does get to go into Asia, and he does get to go to Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila come with him, and they become the foundational family for planting a church in Ephesus. They become the cornerstone of that church, and through their ministry, that church gets strong and becomes the hub of the church planting efforts in all of Asia. And that wouldn't have happened if Paul had gone in his own timing. Through what appears to be failure, through the grace of Jesus Christ, we find the victory of God. We think about Philippi and what seems to be nothing more than just attack and brutality and imprisonment and bruises. And yet, we do know that Lydia has become a Christian. We do know that Lydia's family has become a Christian. We know that the slave owner, the slave girl, you know, like is freed from her demon possession. And, and later on, when Paul is imprisoned and Silas, the prison keeper is so struck by their faith that he and his family come to Christ. And though that's only a handful when Paul leaves, it is a place where Christ's power has taken hold of. And over the next 10 years, by the time Paul writes to the Philippian church 10 years later, that church has grown and flourished and there's elders and deacons and they are so large that now they are supporting Paul financially as he's continuing to seek to plant other churches. With the grace of Jesus, in the midst of what looks like failure, we see the victory of God. And then the Thessalonian church, that, that fragile church that Paul has to leave just a month into their existence. How in the world can they move forward? Well, well Paul, as we said, sends Timothy. And a few months later, Paul writes, says, now Timothy has come to us from you. And what has Timothy told him? Timothy has said, you need to hear about this church. This church they, they have a faith that is active. They, they love each other and are proclaiming the gospel. They have a hope that endures even in the midst of persecution. And so Paul writes, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought the good news of your faith and love, for this reason in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. There is victory here. With the grace of Christ, in the midst of what looks like failure, we find the victory of God. You know, one of the wonderful ironies of this story is those wicked men of the rabble, they were right when they were saying these two men, these two bruised and not very impressive men who are about to be kicked out, they are turning the world upside down through their gospel. Because that's how the grace of the Lord Jesus works. 
And it's not just how it works for these super missionaries like Paul and Silas and, and Timothy. Do you know how Paul finishes his letter to the Thessalonian church? When he is finished writing to this young church who is still being persecuted, the final words he says is, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And with those words, he very knowingly is entrusting these, his beloved church, to the very grace of Christ that he has been entrusted to. And he knows what that means. You know, I think for those of us who have grown up in the church and we hear some amazing stories about acts and, and revivals and Billy Graham crusades, we, we tend to think that God's work looks pretty awesome. That when God is at work in this world, it's, you know, like it's thousands of people coming to Christ. It's, it's, it's revival changing everyone. That with Paul, it was this huge, massive, everyone turning to Christ. And he's just this amazing apostle with, with almost no problems. And, and when we think in those terms, then when we look around at our communities, we think of, we think of Western Springs or Hinsdale or Downers Grove or wherever we live, and we, we think about what it looks like for us to be praying for them and to try to connect with our neighbors, and it just feels so far removed from anything like that, and we feel hopeless. But see, what, what we're doing is we're telling the story wrong. We're forgetting that with the grace of the Lord Jesus, it is in the midst of what often looks like failure that we find the victory of God. Jesus can work in any number of ways, but more often than not, he works when we are in the midst of times where we're confused and praying and waiting and uncertain. More often than not, the grace of Jesus works through innocuous conversations that seem utterly inconsequential at the time, through times where we're going through difficult things and our neighbors notice how we're responding. More often than not, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ works through young churches that are not always sure about what they need to do to be able to love the world around, but are seeking to and feel weak in the process. Because in the midst of what even sometimes looks like failure, with the grace of Jesus, we find the victory of God. You know, if, if God is able to use the most shameful of deaths to defeat death and take away our shame. If he is able to take two men who are beaten and imprisoned and rejected and discouraged and through them turn the Roman Empire upside down, who is to say what God might choose to do through you in your prayers and in your efforts to love your neighbors. What God will do through us as we stumblingly seek to love the community around us. I, I believe that God wants us to tell our own stories better. To tell stories in such a way where we realize that Jesus is at work in us. That the, the power of the gospel is present among us and that God is able to work in and through us as we entrust ourselves to his glorious grace.
And so I'd like to invite us even now just to take a moment and to think and where maybe we have struggled to believe at times to confess as we respond to God's word and even in this moment to seek to entrust ourselves to this mysterious grace of our Lord Jesus as we wait and see what he will do in our lives. So would you please join with me in a time of silent prayer and then I'll lead us in prayer in a, in a couple minutes time. 